This is a, a very powerful topic that I want to talk about tonight. As a matter of fact, when I started to unpack the area of entertainment, I realized just how voluminous this topic is and how it affects us all. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how long or short you've been serving the Lord. This is a challenging area and one that I, I believe we need the grace of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit as we deal with uh, a look at the biblical worldview on entertainment. There are four areas, four questions I want to answer tonight. And... Uh, Time permitting, what is the issue? Second of all, what does the Bible have to say about it? And how should we as Christians live in the midst of it? And then fourth and final, how should we as Christians expose the darkness and preach the gospel? I'll start tonight with, what is the issue regarding uh, entertainment? Entertainment, by definition, is something affording us pleasure, diversion, or amusement. All of us need a moment to pull away from the mundane and routine for a time of leisure and recreation. So I want to point out at the outset, this is not a bad thing. Entertainment is not a bad thing inherently, and at times it is very necessary. The scary part is how accessible entertainment is. We don't have to go very far to be entertained. We can access most anything through our smartphones within a few nanoseconds. We're uh, using our thumbs on a TV remote. Like a drug, we can't seem to break away from it while driving, working, and even during prayer. If we're not careful, entertainment can become a poor substitute for the kind of true joy and contentment that our Lord and Savior provides according to Psalms 16 and 11, which states, You made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Entertainment can serve as a temporary escape from reality. It involves the occupation of our time and of our mind for the purposes of amusement or enjoyment. Entertainment in its various forms can include activities such as sports, movies, music, reading, YouTube, social media, and even surfing the net. Each of these entertainment outlets is in and of itself not necessarily evil. However, if these things consume our time and distract and draw us away from Christ, then we are at risk for it becoming a stronghold in our lives. Look at this. The etymology of the word entertainment is from the Latin word to hold or to captivate. In its simplest form, entertainment, when broken down into four syllables, has the notion of enter or into. Tain, detained or held, and meant, which is state of. Put them together and this is what you get. State of being detained so that said entertainment can enter in. Sometimes subtly, sometimes overt. We are all in this battle together and there's no doubt in my mind that entertainment has the potential to be the premier way for Satan to infiltrate our, our minds and our hearts. Have you ever noticed someone watching a favorite movie and and how it holds their attention, sometimes even to the extent that they're totally oblivious as to what's going on around them? When said entertainment changes who we are, our behaviors, our thoughts, and our state of mind in a way that does not glorify God, it predisposes us to gratify the lust of our flesh and to pursue our carnal desires over pursuing God. We are on dangerous ground 
And as someone said, we need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Above all, according to Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. In the New Standard Version, it says, To guard your heart with all diligence, for it determines the course of your life. What we're talking about is, I, the issue is if, I, if entertainment becomes an idol, we can become addicted to entertainment. Most people think of idolatry as being uh, worshiping statues or, or images, uh, things of that nature. But this is a heart issue. This has to do when we're more interested in pleasing ourselves than we are in pleasing the Lord. Here's the bottom line. We do what we do because, guess what? It feels good. We want to feel good. Entertainment feels good. Here are some numbers I put together, and as I kind of rate through these numbers and unpack this, it was pretty staggering to help us gain some perspective on how entertainment affects us, as, especially as believers, but as a society. Last year, US, the U.S. media industry raked in a total of $703 billion in revenue. That is taking into account motion pictures, streaming content, music, book sales, video games, and the list goes on. Within the next 36 months, that figure is due to increase by $100 billion. That's with a B. So we're talking in the next three years, by 2021 or somewhere around there, that we will be spending as a society nearly $1 trillion, just under $1 trillion on entertainment. The average American household, this doesn't seem like a whole lot, but spends roughly around $2,500 a year on entertainment, according to uh, the U.S. labor statistics. Roughly about $200 of our budget's going out the window to entertainment. Another statistic stated that college-age students in 2015 spent upwards of $6,000 a year on entertainment-related expenses. So we're talking $500 a month is going out the door to entertainment. Time spent on TV, internet, and social media, on average, four to five hours a day is spent watching TV. If you look at it from an eternal perspective, that's seven years of your life spent watching TV. 22 hours a week spent on gaming. I'm not, again, I'm not preaching against video game consoles. I have them. We have them in our home. We have... We're, I'm there, so I'm not saying that these things are necessarily inherently wrong. This is just a perspective in terms of eternity. So in your lifetime, 20 years spent in front of a game console. 20 years. Two to three hours spent on social media of many different forms. That's five years of your life consumed with social media. Now, if this is not staggering enough in comparison to time spent in prayer and Bible reading, it pales in comparison. It breaks my heart when you begin to unpack what this means for us as believers. The Barna Institute and Lifeway Research shows a range of Christian young people and time spent in prayer and in Bible reading. The range goes anywhere from 15 minutes a day to one time a month or less to not at all. So you add all these numbers according to Rudy's math and you get three years a lifetime of prayer and reading the Bible. Seven years watching TV, 20 years spent gaming, five years spent on social media, and roughly three years spent in prayer and Bible reading. 
What will we say when we stand before God and he examines our lives to see that we are spending more time being entertained than we are living and reading and studying and searching the scriptures? So what does the Bible have to say about this? I'm glad you asked. As we look in the book of Daniel, this is a powerful passage and relates to us as individuals. And the first challenge we see in the opening chapter of the book of Daniel, if you wouldn't mind, and just kind of flip back a couple pages, uh, here we see, uh, and you're familiar with the story of Daniel, that Daniel and his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were captured around 597 B.C., by King Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded Jerusalem. And in chapter 1, you can see the events as they unfold. The king was most interested in selecting only the best and brightest of the young men captured during the exile. The king took up the holy vessels from the house of God and placed them in the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. It is interesting to note that this is the same location where the Tower of Babel was built centuries before. And the text in Daniel takes place as I said, around 597 B.C. What's uh, important to note is that the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family. If you look in verse number 3 of Daniel chapter 1, the scripture tells us that then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. What's very peculiar about that text is how it relates to 1 Peter 2 and 9, which lets us know that we are a chosen generation. We're a peculiar people. We are a royal priesthood. And it is interesting to note that Nebuchadnezzar's mission is very synonymous with what Satan's mission is for you and I as people of God, and that is... He wants to go after the best and the brightest minds. He wants to go after the youngest of hearts and indoctrinate them with false god worship. And we see also in 2 Kings, one of the saddest passages in the Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning there, the 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings 24 is also a sad passage and trilogy in terms of the people of God and how the kingdom of God lay in ruin. Just kind of letting us know that this is a very serious matter. Second Kings chapter 24 and verse 13. Notice what's at stake here. The Bible says, and talking of Nebuchadnezzar, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Here we see one of the saddest pictures in, in, in Scripture of God's people being taken into captivity. The things of God being hacked into pieces and dismantled and neutralized. Is that not a picture of what's going on in today's world and generation of people who are 
not as concerned about the things of God that they're marginalizing and they're kind of putting on the periphery the importance of having a heart that's devoted to the things of God. We see that taking place. And Nebuchadnezzar's mission was that he wanted to hone in specifically on the young men. I want to tell you something, that the enemy is after our young men. And the reason why, he knows if he can get the young men, he can also capture the hearts of the young ladies. Because as those young men uh, turn away their hearts from God and they enter into dating relationships and into marriages, that those relationships will be affected as a result of what's going on in the heart. And so Nebuchadnezzar had a plan to teach these Hebrew boys the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And he didn't stop there. These young men were in their teens. And we're not talking about seasoned young men. These were men, that, young men that were probably in the age category of 13 or 14 years old being yanked out of their home, yanked out of their homeland, yanked away from the, the solidarity of their family. And they were the target of the evil king's devious plot to eradicate all traces of their belief in Jehovah God and to indoctrinate them with Babylon's false gods and pagan literature. It would not be far-fetched to surmise that in order to serve the king in the king's court, one would also have to be trained in the areas that the king was most concerned about, such as dream interpretation, astrology, Babylonian literature, language, and false gods. And the king in his evil plot decided that all it would take would be three years. If I could just have my hands on these young men for a period of three years, I could totally eradicate every trace of God and Jehovah God and every mention of God out of their lives. The chief eunuch also sought to change their identity and neutralize all mention of God, which their names contained. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the Babylonian names assigned to them, which all each had reference to false gods. When Daniel refers to his companions, notes that, note that in the first and also the third chapter of Daniel, he refers to them by their Hebrew names, not by their pagan Babylonian names. And I thought for a moment as I was reading this text, why all of this time in Sunday school and coming up that any time the Sunday school teacher mentioned the three Hebrew boys, she would, or he would always refer to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why? Why would they refer to them with their Babylonian names, which stood for false god worship? Why not call them Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which is what the Bible calls them? But for all of these years, that's something I really can't answer, why we would always refer and teach our children that their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which if you understand the meaning of those names, Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh is gracious, but they changed it to Shadrach, which means you are at the command of Aku, the moon god. Every time you say Shadrach, you're giving homage. I know this is a little radical, but I hope it offends you. Mishael, who is like Yahweh? They changed his name to Meshach, which is who is what Aku is. It's like almost like they knew what it meant, and they tried to corrupt and try to change even that subtle meaning. Who is like Yahweh? Who is what Aku is? Azariah, Yahweh has helped, is his Hebrew name. But they changed it to Abednego, which means you are the servant of Nebo, God of wisdom. Daniel is God is my judge, and they uh, changed his name to Belshazzar, which means the bell God protects my life. Daniel 1.8, one of the most powerful passages that I love, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, with the wine which he drank. 
And the scripture goes on to tell us that he asked for a different diet, a different... You see, there was the, the first challenge was that of the appetites. His relationship with God was so deep that he was even concerned about what he put inside his body, what he allowed himself to eat. And it was, it was told in Babylonian culture that the, uh, the Babylonians would mix animal blood with wine amidst their other pagan and occult practices. So to accept the king's food and wine would imply acceptance and fellowship with a leader that openly professes allegiance to false gods and pagan worship. And at that time, you have to understand, they did this at fear of death uh, because uh, at, at the threat of death, Nebuchadnezzar was a king to be feared and whose temperament was psychopathic at times. But we see that what's a very important aspect of this passage is that he decided, he resolved in his heart early on. If we are going to stand against and stem the tide of entertainment and of what it means to us as believers, we need to resolve in our heart before the battle. We need to resolve in our hearts before we're sitting in the movie theater. We need to resolve in our hearts before we're in a situation we don't need to be in. We need to resolve in our hearts that we will not defile ourselves. We will not allow what the king said or what society says or what the popular agenda says that we're going to stay true to our God. Amen? Here's the crux of my message tonight. If you look in Daniel chapter 3, which is the text I read, the, second, the first challenge that Daniel faced and the three Hebrew boys was that of their appetite and wanting to indulge in the king's meat. We, by the culmination of chapter 1, you will notice that by refusing the king's morsels, that Daniel and the three Hebrew boys were more in shape and they were more wise. The Bible says they were ten times more wise than that of uh, those that were in the court that served at Nebuchadnezzar's beck and call. You can't lose with the God I use. Amen? Daniel 3, 1 through 7, we read of a text uh, concerning Nebuchadnezzar and his building and construction of this image that towered nine stories tall, 90 feet tall by nine feet across. And we also understand that uh, two things. Number one was this uh, creation of this image, which is what our young people today what we're all, all of us that we're faced with is how the enemy uses imagery, word pictures, through books, through lyrics, through song, through presentations. It's creating an image in our mind. Uh, we're romanticizing over things. Uh, when I say we, I'm saying as a society, romanticizing over things such as death and suicide and immorality and all these different things is as a result of this image that's been set up. This image was set up in the plain of Shinar, which I said is probably in the exact location where the Tower of Babel was built centuries before. It is interesting to note that it was uh, set up in such a way that you could not miss it. So I want to ask you a question tonight. What is the most impressive uh, thing in our society? What is hard not to ignore? What is hard for us? What stands out the most in our society? What do you notice most at the checkout counter and at the mall and everywhere that you turn, every TV commercial, every... Uh, outlet, every media outlet, what do you see pushed and propagated the most? What stands tall, towers above everything in our society? What is the, what is the golden image of today? You got it. We live in a society where we, everything's highly sexualized. We live in a culture and a climate where our society is consumed and absolutely saturated uh, with the utilization of imagery of, of the debauchery and, and corrupting what God created to be sacred. You can't even watch a butter commercial without them making it into some type of sexual innuendo. 
uh, whether it's a butter commercial or a Super Bowl halftime show, you reckon that we all struggle, we all deal with this realm of entertainment that's vying for our attention, that's vying for the heart of young men, that's inciting lust, that's creating uh, pictures and images in our mind that are contrary to the word of God and what God would have for us. And so we see here that Nebuchadnezzar has uh, put out a mandate that everyone is to observe and be attracted to this image. It was set up that you could see it from a far distance. Um, it stuck out, stuck out like a sore thumb in the plain of Dura. The king wanted to ensure that this monument would not be missed. Satan wants to make sure that the monument of sex, which is an idol, which has become uh, the premier way of the enemy being able to tout much of his messaging, is through this golden image. What is the golden image of 2018? It is the sex god. It is the god that, that tells people, this is how I'm going to live and govern my life. It's what drives all the lyrics from the artists and those in Hollywood. You can't even take your kid anymore to an action movie without there being some element of some sexual innuendo or some type of inappropriate comment, joke, or uh, vulgarity. Why is that? So the first area that uh, I want to deal with in terms of entertainment is, what are we watching? He wanted them to watch the image. He wanted them to observe and gaze into the image, which had very impressive and powerful features I'm not going to get into the prophetic um, areas of the book of Daniel concerning the image and what it represents. That's a whole other topic, a whole other day. But the point is, is that there was an image set up. 18, I did a, uh, some research, and some of the research that I did made the hair stand up on the back of my neck as I dealt and delved into this area of entertainment so you wouldn't have to. Uh, it, it is unbelievable. But... Top shows of, uh, watched by 18 to 49-year-olds. Uh, I'm going to name some names of shows. But first of all, what are we watching? Internet pornography. Usage is through the roof. The addictive nature of this sin is destructive because of what it does to the brain and the memories that it creates live forever. It thrives in secrecy and is pervasive amongst believers and unbelievers alike in the church and out of the church. And one that needs radical accountability in order to be conquered, along with the grace of God. Movies. Charles Spurgeon said, It's an evil day when Christians watch people pay to sin for us. So we, we won't necessarily go out and engage in those activities, but we will certainly bring those uh, entertainment devices and movies into our home, and we'll, we'll allow Satan to pay people to sin in front of us, and we will observe that and call that artistic or call that entertainment. TV shows like The Bachelor, where several women compete for the love of one man they call The Bachelor. It sets women up for hurt, all the while The Bachelor is simultaneously pursuing more than one woman at the same time under the guise of being interested in only one. True love and competition don't go in the same sentence, but society in Hollywood has made that into a reality show, which is set up for failure. Many of those relationships don't even last past the production and shooting time, but we gravitate to these things. Why? Because it makes us feel good. American Horror Story, Pretty Little Liars, Lucifer, which is a new show on Fox, The Simpsons has been running for a long time, South Park, Vampire Diaries, Game of Thrones, Teen Wolf, Teen Mom, Shame on MTV for glamorizing and promoting promiscuity at a young age. Instead of uh, you know promoting a positive message, what are they saying? As long as you've got a camera rolling, we can make your mistakes into a reality show. We can make you money 
we can, we can capitalize and marginalize on the, the real issue here and make it into something that millions of viewers will tune into and call it entertainment. So what are we watching? What is the golden image that we're, we're watching? Verse 5 of Daniel chapter 3, the Bible tells us that it was strictly, uh, it was uh, explicitly stated, Nebuchadnezzar said, at the sound of the music, when you hear the sound of the music, and he begins to list the various instruments, what I want you to do, I want you to fall down and pay homage to this statue, this image, this idol that I have created. Discernment and personal conviction must rule your music choices. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that secular music is bad. There is some secular music that's very decent that I listen to and that I enjoy. So I'm not going to get up here and tell you you shouldn't listen to it. You know, but I am going to say this, that we do need to take a stand about what we are listening to. Somebody needs to talk about the elephant in the room and have some conversations about some of these things and, and, and areas in which entertainment is the premier way of the enemy Uh, coming into our lives with uh, images and thoughts and ideas. Music that we call entertainment, sung by godless artists, has the capability to alter our mood, shift our values, and encourage different behavior. There's no wonder why or how Satan uses music as a means of unleashing darkness upon the world. If you will turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28, you will notice uh, some of the attributes of Lucifer, and it is no wonder why music is still the premier way in which uh, he is able to get others to do his bidding. In Ezekiel 28, we see Lucifer before the fall. And here we see uh, imagery written in the text concerning in verse number 11. It says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And it begins to list the different jewels. Speaking of Lucifer, that he was a decorated angel. He was a cherub angel, which means he stood in the very presence of God. He was designed to protect the glory and the awe of God. He stood in the very presence of God. Everything about him, you continue to read on that text, it talks about all of his attributes, one of which was music. In one translation in the King James Version, it basically says uh, something along the lines that when you move, it would make the sound of a tambourine. That your tabrets and your pipes would make a sound. So as Lucifer moved before the fall, as he moved, he would make music. He was beautiful. The Bible says he was perfect in beauty. What does the enemy do to propagate his message? He will encase a melodic tune with a beautiful form. Throw it up on stage with some scantily clad women and dancers. And what do you have here? You have false God worship. Perfect. The enemy's not just going to come with some, you know, two horns and an ugly pitchfork. How he's going to come is an angel of light. He's going to come beautiful in form in every fashion to attract the attention, to assault the senses. And here we see the Bible describing all the attributes that Satan had. Perfect in beauty, full of wisdom. Verse 13, every precious stone was your covering. Verse 13, the workmanship of your tabrets and pipes was prepared in thee from the day that thou was created. He was the anointed cherub angel. And we see in Isaiah chapter 14, I believe it is, that how he fell uh, and was cast out of heaven and fell like lightning and, uh, and took one, uh, two, or one, was it one third of the angels with him. And so we know that from, from, the, from the text that the same issues that he had of pride 
and of self-deification are the same attributes he will use the entertainment industry and music entertainers to propagate that message. The music entertainment industry is one of Satan's premier ways to influence our culture. The more filthy, vulgar, immoral, and sensuous the artist, the more albums are sold. It is the irreverent, say anything, wear anything, do anything, artists like Lil Wayne and Drake and Miley Cyrus and Katy Perry and Keisha and Nicki Minaj and Rihanna and Beyonce and Lady Gaga and Jay-Z and Snoop Dogg and a host of others are being used by Satan to promote false god worship, perform satanic rituals, and to promote anti-God behaviors, fornication, drug use, poor lifestyle choices. Beyonce, the pagan goddess of secular muses, music, was recently praised as a role model for empowering young women for her best work yet. One of her hit songs whose expletive-filled lyrics are so vile and disturbing, I will spare you the details. Needless to say, her poor advice encased in a melodic beat is the kind of garbage that our daughters and sisters and others are feeding on. Satanic, infused song lyrics wrapped in a melodic and catchy tune with fat bass lines and a pulsating beat are assaulting all that is pure, all that is innocent, all that is sacred. Fame, sex, material possessions, and entitlement is not the path to the joy-filled life touted by these individuals. The sexual purity of our young men and young women in particular are at stake. Stage performers in cleavage revealing and scantily clad outfits, throwing up Illuminati signs and, and strange and satanic rituals, and performing lewd acts on stage is now called artistic expression. This is the kind of entertainment that packs out arenas and post-platinum level sales. The Satanic Church, which was founded in 1966 by Anton Levy, shares on their website what they believe in. You want to hear? Pride. Carnality. Liberty. Egotism. Epicureanism. I didn't really understand what that meant, but it means being able to do whatever you want. You want to drink it, smoke it, snuff it. You want to sleep with it, whatever you want to do. It's whatever feels good, do it. It's okay. Self-deification. One of the phrases in the Satanic Bible is, do as thou wilt. Matter of fact, Jay-Z, one of his, his clothing line, has that posted and plastered all over his shirts and different things you'll see in uh, stores across America. Do as thou wilt. You thought it was just some random saying. It is a cultic and Satanic saying right out of the book of Satan. Lady Gaga, amongst other regularly uh, uh, regular performers, they perform satanic rituals on stage and openly show their allegiance to satanic worship, the occult and the Illuminati. To the undiscerning eye, it looks like a, a strange selection of stage props and what they would call artistic expression. But little do you know when you uncover what's really going on as I, just in the pre preparation of this message, I had to stop and pause and pray and cry out to God because our young people are listening to and watching this and emulating this and singing these songs and rehearsing the lyrics. Do you not know when you rehearse the lyrics to these songs, you are worshiping at the altar of Lucifer? That you're giving praise to a false god when you sing their songs and you hum their tunes and you play it in your car and you go about your way not even thinking about who it is that you're allowing to, to uh, enter in. Remember the definition of entertainment. It's being held captive. It's being the idea, the concept of the state of being detained, the state of being held so that said entertainment can enter in. 
What are you allowing to come into your eyes, into your ears? What are you allowing to come into your heart? The deification of music artists such as Rihanna, Katy Perry, Nicki Minaj, who are priestesses ready to do Satan's bidding with their body and with their music. The medallions, I studied this, the medallions that rappers and other artists wear, the jewelry that they flash, many of which, when you look at it closely, are satanic in nature and deal with the the occult. Even the hand gestures that they do during their dance routines. I didn't believe it, but when I researched it, I understood this. The coded language, even the subtle head nods, are all not happenstance. They're all signifying allegiance to Satan. And if they want to ensure that the viewers understand where they stand, it shows their affiliation and ties to false god worship. When you sing their lyrics, you worship at the altar of false gods. I'm going to share with you some things that probably... I, I wanted to flash it up on the big screen, but I don't want to give any credence to this, but I think you should know this information because so often we just, infilt- we just kind of coalesce with the society, not understanding what we're doing and not understanding how that we are, dis- it's deple- it's- it displeases the Lord. Here are some satanic hand gestures done in today's music. When done with the right hand, the following hand gestures are tied to satanic rituals and are carefully planted in many pop music artists' songs. Some of the gang symbols and the use of the hands show allegiance to the Illuminati. If you don't know what that is, that's a whole other lesson. Be careful when flashing up hand gestures when doing those selfies. People start throwing up those little symbols. You don't realize what you're doing, but you're actually giving allegiance to things you know not of. This is what's called the triple six, which is an okay sign. It looks like three sixes when the hands are held like this by the artist and it's held over the right eye. It signifies the eye of Lucifer. It's called the triple six. And I've actually seen artists that many of us, or young people in general, probably have heard their songs, probably play them in your cars, probably have them loaded into your computers or wherever you access music. And they'll do that sign. You think it's just some random artistic expression. No, it's showing allegiance to a false god. The rock sign, which is what Jay-Z, the mogul rapper, called all of his clothing wear rock aware. That really is synonymous of his affiliation with the Illuminati. And it's called the triangle of, of manifestation. So what you'll notice where they do this. They place their hands in a pyramid shape, and they're looking through that pyramid. That's the Illuminati symbol. And that's something that has also happened, and you've seen that in recent times during the Super Bowl. Uh, you've seen that done two hands together in the shape of a pyramid. It's called the triangle of manifestation. Then there's the El Diablo, which is the devil's horns, the pinky and the index fingers. So this sign right here is a demonic sign. So artists, and I've actually seen the artists. I wish I, I probably should have written down their names that you'll know. I did capture some of them, but it's called uh, the devil's horns. And you'll see various artists flashing that. The hidden eye, when one of the eyes, when the right eye is covered by the right hand, it's not an artistic expression. It is actually willful ignorance. It is one of the satanic rituals of showing willful ignorance. That I know it's right to do, but I'm not going to do it. So covering up the right eye demonstrates that. Michael Jackson, I, uh, there's a video that he did that. Adele, Nicki Minaj, 
uh, Avril, Madonna, Keisha, Lady Gaga, Lionel Richie, and a host of others. You see, this is serious business, folks. We're talking about entertainment. We're talking about what is, what is it that we are captured by? What is it that holds our attention? We've got to understand what we're doing with our hands. Our hands were made for worship. This is very powerful. When we lift our hands in worship, we're showing our allegiance to who? To Jesus Christ. We're showing our allegiance that we are, that we are part of the family of God. We're in relationship with, with God. So it's not just some happenstance artistic expression. There's a lot more going on than meets the eye. So what does the Bible have to say about this issue? 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit. We need to realize that Jesus offers us an abundant life and a joyous life. John 10.10 says what? It says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. What is the thief's main, main mission? It's to take that, that which does not belong to him. And I'm going to tell you this, Satan, you can't have our young people. You can't have our refuge crowd. It doesn't belong to you. And so we need to declare in the house of the Lord that we're going to follow the things of God. We're going to make a decision. We're going to resolve, just like Daniel 1.8 says, I'm going to resolve in my heart. I'm not going to defile myself by eating from the morsels uh, from, from, from a false god or from the altar of Satan. John 15, 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Our true source of joy does not come from entertainment. So many times we, you know, with the fact that we have such accessibility with our phones, we can't even break away from our phones. It was so interesting that Adam mentioned that earlier during the praise and worship um, uh, segment, that how, how often are we just tied to this, this piece of equipment right here that we can't seem to, like a drug, that we resort to it. Instead of turning to our Bibles, we'll turn to our phones. And we can't even drive down the streets without being on our phones. We can't even work, uh, you know, 7.5 hours a day without being on our phone. Uh, you know, what would happen if we were to shut this down for a period of time and turn that time into focusing back on our relationship with God? What would happen if a generation of young people said, I'm not going to bow at the golden image? What would happen if we'll turn off our radios and change the channel and, and make some decisions concerning our entertainment choices that would be honoring to God. What would happen in our society? What would happen in our world? What would happen in our schools? What would happen in our homes if we made those kind of choices? So evaluate what you let into your spirit. Psalms 101.3 says, I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate. They will not cling to me. I love what David says. To cling is almost like when you have that static in your fabric, you know, that you, don't, you, you didn't put a dryer sheet in, in, your, in your dryer load or whatever, and, and your clothes are all bunched up. You know, that's what happens when, when we are not where we need to be with God. Things begin to cling and stick to us. But we have to resolve in our heart. I'm not going to say anything vile before my eyes. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things that are above. Ask, here's a question, will it draw me toward God or towards the world? You see, I can give you a plethora of scriptures tonight that many of which, because it's so embedded in our culture, it may or may not do anything for you. But when you start asking yourself some questions, will this entertainment choice bring me closer to God or will it take me further away from him? Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. I like, uh, you know, to insert and, and to introduce another word, by the renewal of your mind, to, we need to reprogram how we think. We need to reprogram how we make our choices concerning entertainment. 
I'm not saying entertainment's wrong. I'm not saying TV's wrong. I'm not preaching against Xbox. Don't walk out of here and say, Rudy said that, you know, gosh, Netflix is wrong and, and Xbox is wrong and, and every form of entertainment's wrong. That is not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when that is your source of joy, when your source of contentment is only resorting to entertainment as a means of escapism and it consumes all of your time and you're spending an inordinate amount of time in that area of said entertainment, ask yourself, will it draw me towards God or away from him? We've got to reprogram how we're thinking. Psalms 119, 9 through 10. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can we do this in a sex-saturated society? Where everywhere we turn, there's the introduction, there's the innuendo, there's the overt, there's the obvious, there's the irreverent. There's that uh, assault on all that's sacred, all that's pure, all that's innocent. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. David says, I will seek you with all my heart. Do not let my heart stray from your commands. 1 Corinthians 6.12 talks about uh, when, when uh, Paul's talking about meat and, and, and different types of uh, uh, dietary choices, uh, and he makes the comment in 1 Corinthians 6.12 that all things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial or expedient. And he says this, I will not be brought under the power of any. So we need to get to the place where, yes, we're, gonna, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We need to make some choices and decisions regarding uh, Ephesians 4.27, which says, do not give the devil a foothold. Don't even give him an opportunity. Don't even answer the door if he's knocking. We need to not give the enemy a foothold. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Again, as we just said, reprogramming our minds. What does the Bible have to say about this? Third area of our study tonight is how should we as Christians live as a result of these issues? What we're listening to, we're watching. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says this, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. So he gives this imagery in this text about a boxer connecting his punches. He says, I, I, he says, I box in such a way uh, as not beating the air. All right, so you're not just landing all kinds of haphazard punches, but you're connecting those punches, right? You're making contact. You're not just running aimlessly. You're not just here going through the motions, but there is purpose behind every move you make. There's a reason why you don't allow yourself to be in a room with another young lady. There's a, and just you and that individual uh, in, in a situation such as that, you don't you realize that you're not going to uh, succeed being in a rated R movie where you know it's going to be filled with uh, references that, that demean God and that are, are, are against all that God represents in terms of sexual uh, encounters and such. It, 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 it's just it's not going to happen. But we somehow think, well, I'm strong enough. I can deal with this, not realizing what it's doing to reprogram our thinking and jade our, our thoughts and shift our values. The studies that I've performed, just in the virtue of preparing for this message, it is alarming to realize how many Christian young people do not think there's anything wrong with pornography. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 9.27, but I buffet my body. He's not talking about going to, you know, Golden Corral or something like that and having a buffet for your body. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying, I beat my body. I bring it into subjection. I make myself do what I don't want to do. And some of this turning away means taking your thumb on the remote and changing the channel. Just watching the festivities of New Year's Eve, some of the artists that came on stage, 
and what they were wearing and what they weren't wearing. My boys and I are sitting in the room, got to change the channel. But some of, some of us think, well, that's, it's just artistic expression. It's okay just to look. And No, we've got to take a stand and realize I'm not going to bow to golden image. I'm not going to allow it to influence how I think, how I feel. He says, but I'm going to buffet my body, make it a slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. Here's some practical level stuff. First of all, you've got to have some accountability. How should we as Christians live as a result of this issue? Practice accountability. That means even I as a leader, former pastor, I've got to be accountable to someone. In my whereabouts, where I'm at, what I'm, how I'm spending my time, my idle time, my downtime, when I'm traveling, when I'm on business, I've got to be accountable. Filter sites. Use sites that, that will help you to examine the content before you go to that movie, before you rent that red box rental, before you click on that buy now button. There's a site called pluggedin.com. Check it out. It will re- reveal what the movie's content is all about. It will tell you how many excellences, and it's amazing too in my research, how many movies always seem to throw in references that, um, ref- that demean Jesus Christ in some type of derogatory fashion. But it will describe to you the scenes that are in the movie. And then you can make a godly choice as to whether or not that's something that would be a good entertainment choice for you. You need to ask yourself, according to John Piper, has some excellent material out there concerning what to do in terms of being practical and and living as a result of this issue. Ask yourself the following. What are you really longing for? In that entertainment choice the time that you're spending, the money that you're spending, the investment of your resources, what is it that you're really longing for? If you're that person spending $500 a month on entertainment, what are you really looking for? Does this entertainment choice build up my faith or does it weaken my faith? Ask yourself, does this entertainment choice leave me less with less or more of a desire to pray and seek God's face and long for his power? Ask yourself, what will this prompt me to think about? Philippians 4.8, talking about thinking on these things, what sort of things are pure, lovely, just, of good report. Think on these things. And I'm going to tell you finally, as I kind of wrap this up, we have got to get to the place where we ask God daily for repentance. I had to repent. I had to stop and repent just in preparation of this message, because I realized there were certain songs that I liked the beat. I liked that fat bass line and that driving, pulsating beat and all those things, but not realizing the message when you stop and examine the lyrics of what's really being said. What is this doing to my heart? What is it doing to me spiritually? How is it leading me further to Christ or further away from him? So tonight, one of the things we need to do is, in light of God's grace, we we need to ask God's forgiveness. We are no match for the enemy. We are no match for the enemy. You'll study rabbinical accounts will uh, describe some of the things, different commentaries on the battle that took, took place in heaven between Lucifer rising up in pride. And it said, you know, one of, the, one of the commentaries stated that not even Michael, the archangel, wanted to go against Lucifer. He had influence. He was influential enough to take one-third of the angels with him. So even from that context, we see that, you know, we are no match for the enemy. Pray for a godly sorrow that our hearts would break for what breaks his heart. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about a godly sorrow that produces repentance. 
We need to ask God to break our hearts over what breaks his. We're never, in in the the embedded culture that we have, we're never going to be able to muster this up in our own strength. We're not good enough. We're not wise enough. We're not clever enough. We We don't have what it takes to make this work. We need to, to redirect us, to, to regovern, to, to help us in our, in our choices and our thoughts. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I die daily. I never, I don't have this whipped. It doesn't matter how long or short you've been serving God, you never get to the place where you don't have to think about this anymore. This is an everyday battle, a choice as to what I'm going to allow in to my heart gate. Lastly, how should we as Christians expose the darkness and preach the gospel? Ephesians 5, 11 through 13 admonishes us, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. No fellowship. I'm not going to drink the king's wine. I'm not going to eat his morsels. I'm not going there. So you've got to resolve in your heart. Nope, not going to do it. One of the most powerful words that you need to learn how to say and put in your vocabulary is no. When that thought comes, that suggestion comes, Learn how to say the word no. The Bible says what? Resist the devil. We need to start telling the devil no. I'm not going to do it. He'll respect that if you mean it. But oftentimes, because we're so engrossed in what we're doing, we don't have the power. Because our minds are being preconditioned by the lyrics, the thoughts, the mood, the way that music is able to influence our spirit and influence the things about us. We don't have the power to say no to those conversations and things that come up. The last part of that in Ephesians 5 says, uh, rather reprove them. The word reprove has a connotation of to correct, but with kind intent. So we're not talking about being dogmatic or being like, I got this, or, you know, you're so not spiritual and I am. It's not about that. It's more about having the kind of compassion to realize that we are all human. We're all fallen. We all struggle with various things. And we need to correct them and do such in a godly way. How do we do that? Pray for yourself and pray for others. Pray for yourself. One of the most important things we can do in this battle is to ensure that we are where we need to be with God. For the young persons in that Barna Institute research, uh, you know, young people struggling in their prayer life and their devotion with God, some not praying at all, some praying less than 15 minutes, some praying once a month or less. Ask God what you need to do in terms of your preaching the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, let's turn there and that will be our closing text. Second Corinthians 4, 3 through 12. And what does it say? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Or if our gospel is hid. In, in this case, or in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So if that doesn't give you compassion to realize that's the enemy that's behind this, it's the spirit of the ages, Lucifer, that's trying to keep people from understanding the power of the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves and your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. 
We know that God's been gracious enough to us to shine his light into our hearts and to show us. And that's what we need. We need to be lights in the world and realize that, folks, they're looking at us. When we come back to work or school and we're talking about things and we're mentioning different artists and different things, you know, we're fellowshipping with the unfruitful works of darkness. But if we're coming back and we're talking about man, we had the greatest lesson, the greatest Bible lesson, you know, the greatest time, whatever. We need to be preaching the gospel with the joy of the Lord. That is our strength. The gospel life doesn't have to be boring and mundane. The Bible talks about that he's given us life and that more abundantly. John 10.10, 10, life to the full. What does life to the full look like? That means we know the true path to joy and happiness. And it's not what the world's talking about. It's not what the music artists and the entertainment industry is touting. It's fellowship with the Savior. It's putting our trust in Jesus. It's taking delight in him. It's taking delight in his word and realizing that he is, he is something to be treasured. I can think back, uh, you know, Christmas in our home. You know, we'd always try to uh, make sure that we had great Christmases and, and that the kids uh, would enjoy, uh, you know, there's nothing like a parent being able to give that gift to their child and watch them open the expression on their face. And you'll see of all the gifts you get them, you will always see them gravitate to the the one thing that they treasure the most. And what will they do? They'll push all the other toys aside. Sometimes it's frustrating because the one you spent the most money on gets thrown to the side. And the one that you spent the least amount on, they gravitate towards that. The bottom line is they treasure one thing out of all of those gifts. And all of their attention, all their focus is on that one thing. I wish we can get that way with our walk with the Lord, that we would just kind of push everything else aside and treasure him above everything else. That he'd mean more to us. We'd love him more than anything. He would, he would be more dear to our hearts. We would consider him in our thoughts. We consider him in our decisions. When we're standing at the red box kiosk or when we're making a choice as to whether or not to click on that link or go to that website and make that decision that we're thinking, always thinking about, who do I treasure the most? God, help us that he would reprogram how we think, that we won't go with the way of the world and the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, that as soon as they hear the music, automatic, it's automatic. People start moving and start doing their thing and getting into the groove. We're not going to bow to the devil's music. We're going to be different. We're going to stand out. And in the end, the end of the story is this, is God preserved Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. God kept them in the midst of the fiery furnace. They were a witness so much so that by the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar went from being a false god worshiping uh, uh, cult. Uh, you know, he had enchanters. He had people that would stir up spirits and channel spirits and demons and all of that. By the end of the book, we see that Nebuchadnezzar, his heart was turned to God. And he recognized Jehovah as the true God. What would happen if we as refuge young people, full of God, full of the Holy Ghost, full of the Spirit, full of God's wisdom, the truth of God's word, would begin to take a stand in certain areas. Who it would witness to, who it might reach, our bosses, our employers, that foul-mouthed person who, every time you talk to them, they're an expletive-filled somebody. But by the virtue of you being in that workplace, God can use you to be a witness, to be a light for the gospel. It can happen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you that we've had an opportunity the past 45, 50 minutes to discuss your word. and Lord, I realize tonight I'm not perfect. I'm far from it. I realize, you know, maybe even tonight in things I've said, I did my best, but maybe the things I said that were erroneous or not true or uh, miscalculated or misspoken. And so, 
Tonight, Lord, I just pray that you would just get the glory out of everything. We're not here for me. It's not about me. It's not about anyone in this room, but it's about you, Lord. So we just pray that you would get a hold of our hearts and help us in our decisions and our choices over the next weeks and months that we'll think about um, pleasing you more than pleasing ourselves. Lord, at the end of the day, we want to uh, stand before you and be able to say that we spent 22 years praying and reading your word versus three years in a lifetime spent in prayer. We want to be able to turn some numbers around and realize that tonight we can reconfigure our lives and we can make some different decisions concerning what we allow ourselves to, uh, to be involved in. We know that entertainment's not necessarily wrong. It's, you've given us uh, so much to enjoy and uh, you know, so much to be, able to, uh, to be able to enjoy our lives through leisure and recreation and time away from the job and from the monotony of the office. But Lord, let not these things take our delight away from you. Help us, God, that we will not be addicted to entertainment, that, Lord, we would, in essence, use it as a tool and a vehicle to, uh, to decompress, but then also to be able to turn our eyes back to you and focus on what's important. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us, God, not to major on minors and minor on majors, but, God, help us to go back to the beauty of your word, to dig into it, to, to love it, to consume it, uh, Lord, and be able to uh, walk with you as you were, the Bible says, uh, your word says, as we, if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship. And your blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so we pray that that process will take place starting tonight. And this will be careful to give you praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Lenore.